one day if we ever have real stuff, <laughs> we'll look back <laughs> on this and laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever look back on it and be proud, but, you know, I'm also talking into a microphone surrounded by hand towels, so truly at humble beginnings. I'm feeling a little proud. We're making a thing. We're, we're doing stuff. We are. We're pushing through it, doing a thing. All right. So, happy Mother's Day. Happy we're, Mother's Day. We're doing myths about mothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, to clarify, when we're recording this, it's just after Mother's Day. When you're listening to it, it's many weeks later. Yes. Because creating a thing takes time. Sometimes creating a thing (laughs) takes time. So we are talking about mothers. And to start, I will say, hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. (laughs) And I'm Rowan Hall. Welcome to the Willing and Fable podcast. We are a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. And like we said earlier, today we're going to be talking about goddesses in creation, sometimes referred to as mother goddesses or earth goddesses. Mothers. I will admit it does feel a little bit more corny now that we're acknowledging Mother's Day. (laughs) When have we ever not been corny is the real question. Moving onward and upward. To more fully understand the women that we'll be discussing today, we wanted to give you all a brief overview on the idea of mother goddesses and their similarities and differences with earth mothers. A mother goddess personifies the idea of motherhood. Many times these goddesses are associated with the earth, and they are often paired with a complementary sky father or a similar male figure. Some academics debate the difference between mother goddesses and earth mothers. Mother goddesses can be described as a source of vitality, but they must periodically experience intercourse in order to create life. They are usually more individualized in personality and personification than the earth mother counterpart. On the other hand, the Earth Mother is a cosmonic figure represented as an eternally fruitful being. She is an all-powerful force of life and creation, but is usually a much more amorphic or conceptual being than her mother goddess counterpart. When I was reading the article, one of the articles about Mother Goddess versus Earth Mother, it kept describing it as must endure or undergo intercourse in in order to create life. And that felt very harsh to me. Yeah, I read the same article and I felt like that set me up for a mythology in which the women were not participants. Right. It it just felt very forced. Um, So I'm glad you you changed it to experience intercourse. Just had to call that out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I am. That undergoing is not necessarily in line with my myth, so... (laughs) (laughs) Nor mine. Um, And with that, I can jump into my story if you'd like to hear it. Yes, because I'm very jealous that you got this myth, and it was very hard for me to not research it. Rowan very generously let me take this myth because I was really (laughs) excited about it. And and to her credit, she had already started researching it and still graciously gave it over to me. So I really hope I do it justice. Well, I started researching all the fun parts, which I won't give away. (laughs) So it was very easy for me to say that I won't learn anymore because at that point I hadn't exactly learned very much. I'd just gotten excited. (laughs) Well, hopefully I make you equally excited. All right. Bring it. 
I am going to tell you the story of Tiamat. Written in 1200 BCE upon seven cuneiform tablets is the story of creation. The title of this tale, Enuma Elish, got its name from the opening lines of its first story. These lines read, When on High, which describes the gods. These tablets tell the story of Tiamat and her demise. Filling the cosmic abyss with the primeval waters, she is Umu Huber, she who formed all things. Sometimes she's depicted as a dragon, but she is the mother of dragons, serpents, scorpion men, and merpeople, among other creatures. She is the shining personification of salt water, born in the chaos of original creation. She is Tiamat. In the beginning, there was only water, swirling and endless chaos. Out of this chaos came Apsu, god of sweet water, and Tiamat, goddess of salt water. She's sometimes depicted as a woman, sometimes as a dragon, and other times as something in between. Tiamat and Apsu merged and fathered children. Lamu and Laamu, twin deities representing silt, although sometimes they are depicted as taking on the form of serpents. They are the parents of the ends of the heavens, Anshar, the end of the heavens, and Kishar, the end of the earth. Together, these two meet at the horizon and create Anu, heaven, and Ki, earth. Thus, through Tiamat and Apsu, all other younger gods and goddesses were created, many more than I can even name here. For a time, there was peace. This peace, however, would not last. Apsu had grown angry over the noisy tumult the younger gods had created. They would disturb his sleep at night and distract him from work during the day. And so it was his vizier, Mumu, who gave Apsu an idea. This idea was to kill the younger gods, remove them from the world, and end Apsu's suffering. Despite her attempts to calm him, Tiamat was unable to dissuade Apsu from his plans. So she went to her son Enki, who later merged with Ea, the god of wisdom, and told him of his father's plans to murder all the younger gods. Enki went and captured Apsu and took him below Apsu's own temple, where he held his father prisoner. He then put his father to sleep and killed him. Some say Tiamat was enraged that her son would dare kill his father, and others say that she was pressured and forced to take action. Regardless, Tiamat consults with the god Kingu, who advises her to avenge her husband. The only way to take her revenge was to start a war with the younger gods. Tiamat rewards Kingu with the Tablets of Destiny. These tablets legitimize the rule of any god who controls them, and it lets them control the fates. Kingu wears them proudly as a breastplate. With Kingu as her champion, Tiamat summons the forces of chaos and creates 11 horrible monsters to destroy her other children. These monsters were the venomous snake, the great dragon, the exalted serpent, the furious snake, the hairy one, the big weather beast, the mad lion, the scorpion man, the violent storms, 
the fish man, and the bull man. Ea, Enki, and all the younger gods fought against Tiamat, but it was no use. They couldn't win. Until, from among them, emerged the champion Marduk, who swore he could defeat Tiamat, but he would do so in exchange for being revered as the king of all the gods. True to his word, Marduk kills Tiamat by shooting her with an arrow which splits her into two, and from her weeping eyes flow the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Out of her corpse he creates all of heaven and earth, and through her tail creates the Milky Way. Marduk appoints gods to various duties and binds all eleven of Tiamat's monstrous creatures to his feet as trophies. He takes the Tablets of Destiny from Kingu, thus legitimizing his reign as king of the gods. After the gods have finished praising him for his great victory and the beautiful art of his creation, Marduk consults with the god Ea, the god of wisdom, and decides to create human beings from the remains of whichever god instigated Tiamat to war. These humans will be made to serve the gods. Kingu is charged, guilty, and he's killed, and from his blood, Ea creates Lulu, the first man. He is to be a helper to the gods in their eternal task of maintaining order and keeping the chaos at bay. And that is the story of Tiamat. Right off the bat, I appreciate in this story that it is constantly flowing from chaos to organization, to chaos to organization and back. Yeah, it, it's so clear in her story that she is stuck in this world that is swirling. And as much as they try to impose order on it, it doesn't stick. Am I correct that this is the Sumerian myth? Yes. Sorry, I forgot to say that. Thank you. This is an ancient Sumerian myth. Um, they think it originated in around 1750 BCE, but it wasn't written on the cuneiform tablets they found um, until 1200 B BCE. It's so interesting to me because the Sumerian pantheon is much larger than the Greek and Roman, and it also predates them. And yet... At least in our public school, it wasn't really taught at all. No. No, few, I mean, honestly, few were outside of the ancient Greek and Roman religions. I, can't, I don't even really think we were taught ancient Egyptian religions, and that's another very popular one. That's true. I hadn't really thought about that because you and I were constantly reading <laughs> we were, about yes. Egyptian mythology. I read every single book on ancient Egypt mythology that our elementary school library had to the point where I knew the section and the librarian would roll her eyes when I walked over to the section. Tracy would go directly to the ancient Egyptian section and I would go directly to the ghost story section. This is true. This is genuine <laughs> fact. <laughs> I remember exactly where it was on the shelf. If we walked into our elementary school and somehow the library still looked the same, I would be able to find where those books were. Same. I know exactly where the <laughs> ancient Egypt section was. It was right to uh, the left of the door in the first row of books. Later in life, I bought a couple of the books that were in our elementary school ghost section when I found them at used bookstores. That's amazing. I wouldn't buy a single one of the ancient Egypt books I read as a kid. They're all wrong. They had pictures of slave masters kicking slaves off the top of pyramids. And 
it was totally wrong. But Oof. anyway, <laughs> that's no, that's that's good. We've we've advanced past elementary school. <laughs> so because I stopped myself from researching this specifically so that I could ask you questions. OK. When you were reading this myth, did you get a feeling that Tiamat was respected as a powerful goddess in her own right or she was considered one half of the whole, both male and female, parts of creation? Both. Um, I would say she definitely was known through her association with Apsu, but she's known more for the fact that she's the mother of pretty much everything. I mean, in some versions of the story, Kingu, the god who um, is her champion, is also her lover, and I mean, also her son. Every other god mentioned here, aside from Apsu, is her child. Um, that was more prevalent than the idea that she wasn't as strong as Apsu. I would say I actually found her to be very empowered within the story, um, which which brings me to one of my favorite parts of this story is she's, in my opinion, one of the few goddesses I've heard of who turns from the protagonist of her story to the antagonist of her own story. That's the part that I like the most about her, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So according to some uh, analysis, there are two parts to the Tiamat myth. The first, where she's a creator goddess through the idea of sacred marriage, which is a trope you see among creator goddess myths. Um, and that marriage happens between the salt and the fresh water. And I love that she's the salt water and that Apsu is the fresh, sweet water. I was intrigued that he was associated with water at all, actually. Oh, yeah. The idea was the earth was nothing but water. It was purely water, and Apsu was the embodiment embodiment of fresh water, and Tiamat is the embodiment of salt water, and it was just always swirling, and it was total chaos, and finally they came together and then became Apsu and, and Tiamat and then gave birth to, I believe their first children were Lamu and Laamu, the twins, and mm-hmm. then, you know, subsequently it just exponentially expands from there. But it wasn't even until Tiamat died that the mountains and valleys were created and rivers. It, it was through her that we got Earth the way we think of it now. I see time and time again women being associated with water in mythology. Of course, we have tons of creation myths that originate in water. But even if you want to just go to simple stories of nymphs or mm-hmm. sirens, women are just associated with water because, I mean, what happens when you're about to give birth? Your water breaks. We come from the womb. Yeah, that was something in college um, in my, I took a class my freshman year of college called Science Fiction as Philosophy, where we looked at different sci-fi movies and texts and and books um, through the lens of philosophy. And in that, it was really clear and really interesting to see that almost universally if something is depicted as dark and wet it means it's feminine and you see that here and throughout a lot of mythology and i always i remember hearing that for the first time and being like no i think you know people always describe women as bright and pretty and smelling nice and all of that stuff but when you're talking about the subconscious interpretation of of woman it is that idea of the womb of being in this dark place in this wet place and I, I just like that you bring that up. I don't have more of a 
more to it than that. No, no, it really intrigues me. And mythology, when it is not pared down for children's books or for simplicity's sake, it often involves a lot of sexuality. And that, to my mind, has a very clear basis in just the physical reality of having a female sex body. So when they created female identifying gods, it makes absolute sense. I was just watching the National Theatre Live's production of Frankenstein, which they has Benedict Cumberbatch in it. It's fabulous. They put it up during quarantine. Please send me a link to that. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. But one of the things that so interested me was Frankenstein, the doctor, mm-hmm. his desire to create life. And in the play, his fiance consistently asks him to stay with her and engage in a life with her. And when she realizes that he wants to bring forth life, she asks him if he wants to have children with her. Because women bring forth life, mm-hmm. or I should say females bring forth life. Or and it, um, how do we uh, people with wombs bring yeah. forth life. People, people with wombs, and I think I keep getting pulled into saying women because we're specifically talking about mother goddesses that I identify as women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, people with wombs bring forth life, and the idea that Frankenstein, who is a male, wanted to create life and then it became monstrous is just a continuation of that ever-prevalent myth to me. I mean, and... We'll have to do a whole episode on the Frankenstein story because Mary Shelley wrote it. And so the idea that it came from the mind of a woman, you know, what does that say about the story? I think it's so interesting. Oh, I'm writing that down. We're doing it. You can't get out of that now. No, I don't want to. Um, So back to the Tiamat story, we mentioned the duality of it. So the idea that it starts out as the classic sacred marriage. They create life and then things go wrong. And the second half is called the chaos conft. Um, And in that, that's where Tiamat becomes known as the monstrous embodiment of primordial chaos, which I would argue is how pretty much all of us know her today. If you know Tiamat, one, you probably know her through Dungeons and Dragons. But two, if you know of her as a goddess, it's more of that goddess of primordial chaos and less as the, the mother of all things. So speaking of Dungeons and Dragons, I'll just touch on it because I know people will freak out if it's not mentioned. She was popularized as a five-headed draconic goddess in Dungeons & Dragons back in 1975, and she's still a very popular figure in the game today. So given her known relationship to serpents, the fact that she's sometimes even depicted as a serpent or a dragon, it is not shocking that she was brought into the game, especially considering how she turns into an antagonist even within her own story. It's not hard to co-opt that nature into the character of Tiamat, the mother of all evil dragons in Dungeons and Dragons. Can you tell me in the original myth of Tiamat if a dragon is considered a negative beast that needs to be slain by a white knight, you know, or if it is a a creature that is sacred and deserves respect or maybe a little bit of both? A little bit of both because she doesn't just create dragons. She creates kind of every version of monsters. So they all have their own cuneiform and Sumerian 
names that I unfortunately didn't want to risk butchering. Um, so I read their English translations, but she creates serpents, snakes, dragons, um, scorpion men, fishmen, bullmen, a violent storm. She creates all of these creatures, and they're not considered these things that man has to slay or anything like that within this particular story. Their ending is that they get chained to Marduk kind of as trophies. So they're presented as these... I would argue they're presented no different than the other gods. They're created by Tiamat and used for evil, but I wouldn't say they're presented as inherently evil. But they're not touched on a lot because this story came from a 3,000-year-old tablet, so pulling context out of it is a little bit trickier than something that has a ton of replicated versions throughout history. All that to say... I personally did not find them to be inherently evil or inherently something to worship. Kind of the same way the gods were presented, except they were pushed more as they created man and man needs to worship them. All right, go with me on this journey for a moment. Oh, can't wait. I am... <laughs> thank you. I am... After hearing this story, I can't stop myself from thinking of the Irish goddess... And forgive me for my potential mispronunciation, but the Hag of Bera, or she's sometimes called the Old Woman of Dingle. Mm -hmm. She's a, a crone, yeah. a crone goddess, and she is known for, at times, creating mountains in the sea. Mm -hmm. But it is often depicted in Irish mythology that there is the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Right. And that is sort of the life cycle of a female mm -hmm. in that storytelling. And hearing the Tiamat story, I connect kind of the idea of her as the mother and then her as a force of destruction mm -hmm. to that in a way that in the Irish stories I'm thinking of, you start out as a maiden, but then you're a mother and then you go through this period of... Oh, gosh, it depends on the story of caring for the land or being sacred, having sacred wisdom, but right. not participating in creation any longer. Right, right. And she, I think she's so different from a lot of stories where I think her title as mother gets shed fairly quickly within her own origin story. But she still fundamentally is one of the original mother goddesses within human religion so her duality is what made me so excited to dig into her story more and i just find her so cool like i know there's better words for it but she's so cool no cool is a great word she gets to lead a war and people follow her I also am interested in this idea of her potentially choosing to get into this fight or being forced to be in this fight. That is really interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, one of the versions of the story I read described her as this reluctant antagonist. And so I wanted to bring that into my telling of it, of maybe she was a reluctant antagonist and maybe she just snapped and was so angry. Either way, the result is the same. So the last thing that I wanted to mention about this story is something that I call the matriarchal fallacy um, that is also known as the mother goddess theory. 
Before I talk about it, I want to say that I don't believe in it and that it's almost certainly not true. The idea is that these mother goddesses are meant to represent a matriarchal and peaceful society. And it's tempting to believe that, but it's probably not true. According to Wikipedia, Robert Graves considered Tiamat's death by Marduk as evidence for his hypothesis of an ancient shift in power from a matriarchal or mother-led society to a patriarchal or father-led society. Graves' ideas were later developed into the Great Goddess Theory by Mariha Gimbutas, Merlin Stone, and others. The theory suggests Tiamat and other ancient monster figures were presented as former supreme deities of peaceful, women-centered religions that were turned into monsters when they were defeated at the hands of a male hero. This is supposed to imply that male-dominated religions overthrew ancient women-dominated religions. However, this theory is rejected by most of academia and many modern authors. So it's more likely that this story of Tiamat and Marduk really is meant to explain either how Marduk came into power and why he's seen as the king of the gods or how the earth was physically created or maybe nothing of those or both of those. The truth is we don't know, but it is very unlikely that this story represents that shift from a matriarchal to a patriarchal society because it's kind of unlikely those society those societies ever existed. It'd be great if they did. It'd be wonderful. But the idea that man was once peaceful and then turned violent is probably not true. Based on historical and archaeological and anthropological evidence, man was probably always prone to violence since we started living together. Which isn't to say I don't think it's a great way to analyze a story. And that's that what I seems, want to make clear. Go ahead. That seems like the very Western look of Judeo-Christian religion taking over polytheistic religion, then yeah. being translated onto this myth that stands entirely on its own. That's a really good way to describe it. Um, there's another quote that I liked that said, the modern goddess theories are a projection of contemporary worldviews on ancient myths rather than attempting to understand the mentality of that time. This is accompanied by a desire for a lost civilization from a bygone era that would have been just peaceful and wise. So it's like you said, I think it's really us putting our modern day lens onto ancient stories and the Great Goddess Theory came about in, I believe, the 70s, which was a big time of um, growing feminism and women's movements, which I'm all for. But as much as I would love to believe that it could be true, it, it just doesn't line up with historical evidence. I have so many thoughts about this, and I'm going <laughs> to save them for after my myth. Yeah. Yeah. I had so many thoughts about it, too. Um and I'll just give my last set of thoughts, and then I really, really want to hear your myth. But No, go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> like I've said, the Great Goddess Theory is likely not true from a historical perspective. But as a storytelling tool, I think it is so cool to use to explore this myth and, and other goddess myths. I think 
looking at those stories through a modern day lens allows us to imagine a peaceful society that might not have existed. You can think of of Wonder Woman and the island she came from as this women-led peaceful society, um, just as one example. But I, I think it gives us a new set of tools to use to just imagine different worlds. And I really want to highlight, I think these imaginings and this analysis needs to be done in a storytelling perspective, but that doesn't invalidate the idea of thinking of stories that way, knowing that it history is different. It reminds me of the Odyssey, the idea that the adventurer who had struggled against force after force then finally got to come home into the arms of a woman who is peaceful and nurturing and has set up a space that is safe for a man that has had to fight. Yeah. One of my favorite things is taking these incredibly elaborate stories that have been told throughout history and bringing them into our modern day perspective and seeing how the story changes. One of my favorite examples of that is the idea of the Hades and Persephone myth has shifted where Persephone in many retellings now is not a victim but a willing participant. And I just love the idea of giving her that agency back. And so that's where I'm coming from with, I love the idea of getting to read the Tiamat story from a modern day lens where we can put so much power back into her hands while recognizing that it's not necessarily the same as the you know historical version of the story. And they can be two separate things. Oh, I am so excited to talk to you about all my research based on what you just said. Oh, I'm so excited. All right, I'll hand it off to you. Rowan, okay, tell me a really story. Really quick, before I get into that, I'm going to briefly interrupt myself and say that the goddess that I spoke about being Irish, <laughs> she very likely was Scottish and or Celtic in general, and I do not know the country lines of that myth. I only... Read it in a children's book, everyone. <laughs> she is the mother goddess that personifies winter. And I don't want anyone to think that I am presenting hard facts as I talk about that one. Yeah, glad you brought that up. Nothing we talk about here are hard facts. First of all, nothing in story is hard fact. Hey! <laughs> and second of all, we are not experts. We're just two people who get unreasonably excited about the idea of storytelling and myths. So with that said, tell me a story, Rowan. All right. So as I've been exploring these creation myths with female gods in the center, I have had this one idea that has been stuck in my head. Uh, and this was actually reminded to me because I just, just, just purchased the book Zeus Grants Stupid Wishes, A No-Bullshit Guide to World Mythology <laughs> by Corey O'Brien. And I have not read the entire book, but I will say that the introduction is one that I particularly enjoyed because he talks about, Tracy, what you were just mentioning, the idea that mythology can grow and evolve and there is room to not be precious about it. And that <laughs> in many cases, the best form of the story was what the bard could memorize so that he didn't get attacked by barbarians. <laughs> that is pulling from his book. And I, I really enjoyed the levity that he brought to the table there. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I don't necessarily think it's the only way to go about it, but I definitely think it's a perfectly valid way to go about it. In his introduction, he mentioned the book A Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. You know how much I love Joseph Campbell's work. Yes, yes. (laughs) I think you can probably see where I pull some of my ideas from. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So... I go back and forth on Joseph Campbell. I sometimes love him. I sometimes could leave him. But... Yeah, I'm more intrigued. And I should clarify, I think his work is fascinating. I don't buy all of it. But I think what he did for the art of storytelling and the analytical nature of, how do I explain it? The the idea of, of narration and, and analyzing story, just the work he did and the, the roads he paved are incredible. So I'm, I kind of admire what he did as much as how he did it. Oh, yeah. And I can definitely say I have bought his oh, work. Yeah. <laughs> I have paid money for his work. I used work. to fall asleep watching his um, video series he did about story analysis. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, we can't sorry. get into that because <laughs> we will go there. But I want to talk about Joseph Campbell's idea that many of the psychological problems people struggle with today come from a collective rejection of mythology. More specifically, a rejection of the commonalities between myths from around the world. So ancient people sought to explore massive ideas. What is the world? What is my place in it? Are people born with destiny? Can I continue in some form for all of eternity? That's only a few of them. And I think that in modern times, people can call that exploration antiquated because many people who study myths are not in a position of needing to think about how will I hunt down my food? Mm -hmm. How will I put shelter over my head in the immediate sense, which removes people from then that kind of greater wondering in an interesting way. To me, the best way to think about that is if you've ever sat somewhere and had a really, really, really clear view of the night sky, it feels so much more reasonable to say, no, those are the jewels of the gods, not balls of gas hundreds of thousands of light years away. Like it's just sitting underneath a really, really, really clear, bright night sky is one of the few ways I have personally felt connected to the world in a truly deep sense that you just don't get as much with our day-to-day experiences. So, Of course, and there's a huge difference between the study of ancient mythology and storytelling and personal beliefs and science. (laughs) These are all so different and they often overlap. But now when we have cell phones and social media and big, difficult, modern news to deal with, it's easy to ignore the very present reality of mythology in Mm -hmm. daily life. And I think if we all just look at the Netflix library, we could see that people are asking the same questions. We just have different ways to do it now. So I have presented that and have no graceful transition. (laughs) Hey, it's Rowan. In the story you are about to hear me tell, I mispronounce a few key words. I am so embarrassed and I am so sorry. I should have used a different source when I was looking up how to pronounce them. And on top of that, my mouth doesn't always cooperate even when I know what I should be saying. So the words are the goddess and god, 
Izanami and Izanagi, and the word kami. I took the E sound that should be at the end of all of those words and replaced it with an A sound. I can't promise that that's the only mistake in pronunciation you'll hear, but I wanted to address it because it is so glaring and so critical to the story. <sighs> I'm sorry, guys, but I hope you'll enjoy the story. I now tell you all <laughs> the myth of Izaname and Izanage. It is the Shinto myth of creation. In the beginning of time, there was the heavens and there was the earth. Some say it was a tangled mass of chaos, roiling with storms, earthquakes, water, and sky. Others describe it as a separation of nothingness between the two spheres. Nothing living, nothing growing. But, after a long time, longer than imagination, a bright light rose, giving birth to the first tree. This tree had a consciousness all its own, and grew to become the first kame, or divine. The tree was known as the eternal earthly support of majestic things, and it produced the two additional members that made up the supreme trinity. The supreme gods, living in the joy of their ability to create, continued to bring forth more gods— the eighth pair of which were known as Izaname and Izanage, meaning she and he who invites, respectively. They were a stunningly matched pair, each known for their beauty. When they were charged with the creation of the land of the earth, they could not have been more excited. To accomplish their task, Izanage was gifted a manooku, the spear from heaven, that was decorated with powerful jewels. The divine pair came down to earth using a celestial bridge, and Izanage was instantly interested in the shape of this new water-covered world. He did not hesitate. He plunged his spear deep into the waters before him, stirring and swirling the world. As he pulled back the blade... The drops of water and murky mud that fell from its sharp edge formed the first island in the sea. They watched in amazement as two birds landed on the island they'd created. Izaname and Izanage watched as the birds, able to rest from their constant flight on the first outcropping of land, coupled together and began to make a nest. In this moment, the brother and sister learned what love was. They immediately created the Hall of Eight Fathoms in which to live like the birds on Anorgoroshima. That is the name of their island. They did not hesitate and immediately erected a beautiful pillar to dance around and solidify their power. Izanage danced around to the right and Izaname danced around to the left. And by the time they met each other on the far side, they were rapturously joyful. Izaname spoke first, taken by her brother's beauty. How delightful it is to meet so handsome a youth, she said. Izanage replied, 
How delightful I am to have fallen in with such a lovely maiden. Their first child was a boneless, disgusting leech child who they raised for a time, but eventually released to the sea in a reed basket. The second was an island that they didn't care for at all. They felt that they'd failed miserably despite their love, so they returned to heaven to ask what they'd done wrong. The supreme deities responded simply, Izaname should never have spoken first during the marriage ritual. It was improper. So they quickly returned to earth, and they repeated the process with the pillar again, this time with Izanagi, the man, speaking first. And then the fun really began. They had many, many more children. The eight main islands of Japan, the six minor islands, the deities of straits, the wind, the trees, and the mountains all sprung from Izaname. But Izanami's final birth was to the fire deity. After an incredibly painful pregnancy, the fiery child sprang forth burning his mother's genitals so badly that the beautiful goddess died writhing in pain. But not before her vomit and other bodily fluids created even more children. Still, now, their newly perfected marriage made every act fruitful. Izanage wept and wept over his sister and bride, so much so that his tears created another god. But then he rose, filled with hot rage that far surpassed that of the newly minted fire child. He killed the fire deity by chopping him up into bits and casting him out, creating the volcanoes of Japan. Izanagi's sword dripped with the blood of the world's first death, and yet it was not enough to numb the pain he felt for poor Izaname. He could not live without his beloved wife and companion, so Izanagi resigned himself and followed his love to Yomi, the underworld. There she was, in the darkness, heard but unseen by her lover. He begged for her to leave with him, but she could not go. Alas, she'd eaten the food of Yome and was now trapped within the plain. But he begged and begged. He told stories of their beautiful creation, of their divine life together, and Izanami swayed. She was a kami, and she did not belong in this darkened world of death. So she struck an agreement with her brother. Izaname would go with him, but she was tired and must rest before the long journey. The next day they would leave, but only if Izanagi promised not to try to see her in the darkness. He swore himself to this agreement. But Izanagi was an impatient god unaccustomed to waiting for anything. He wanted to see his beautiful wife. As she slept, he pulled the comb that held his long hair and lit a small fire on the end. When Izanage held it up to his lover's form in the darkness, he was horrified. The once beautiful Izaname was wasting and ravaged, her skull exposed, her skin 
bawling, her innards rotting. She was being consumed by maggots, even as she rose in horror that her brother had broken their deal. Izanagi ran in horror, and his sister pursued him in wild shrieking. She was horrified to have been seen in such terrible condition, so she sent the eight deities of thunder, which were born from her very body, and the shikome, the demon women of the underworld, to drag him back into the darkness with his goddess sister. How dare he only love her when she was beautiful in the shining light of day. Izanage used every trick he could muster to make it back to the gate of Yome. And as he breathlessly passed to the entrance of the underworld, he mustered the last of his godly strength to push a massive rock against the opening, sealing off the underworld and his lover forever. Izanami shouted after him from the darkness at the door. If you do this, if you separate us forever, I will strangle and kill a thousand men of your land each day. (laughs) But Izanage would not be bested by his sister. You may try, but if you do, I will create 1,500 more each day. And so they did for a time. As is the nature of gods, they made and killed mortals in their fighting. But first, after his time in Yome, Izanage had to ritually cleanse himself. Izanage closed the gate to the underworld and went to the river to wash off the horror of Yome and his equally horrifying wife. As the water of the river rolled off Izanage, more gods were born. From his left eye... Amasterasu, the sun goddess. From his right eye, Sukeome, the moon god. And dripping from his nose, Sunaano, the god of the sea and storms. These children are known as the three precious children. Even now, the fertility of their marriage affected his every act. Izaname and Izanage never met one another again. And that is the story of creation from Shinto, Japan. It's such a good story. And and while you were telling it, I realized I've actually heard it before. Not in that much detail, but if you're ever interested, uh, there's a YouTube channel called Overly Sarcastic Productions. And it's run by by two people. And uh, they name themselves Red and Blue. And Blue talks about history, but Red talks about storytelling. And Red covers this story. And I just find it so interesting. It's such a good story. And I feel like we both chose stories where the mother goddess turns into an antagonist. Okay, so I will say right off that one of the sources that I used from YouTube called Extra Credits has Red and Blue crash the episode at the end as cartoons and invite people over to their channel, which is very funny and cool. So if you head to our show notes, you will make it to Tracy's source as well. <laughs> yes, uh, the three channels on YouTube, if you if you like the idea of mythology, which I hope you do because you're listening to this, are Crash Course, Overly Sarcastic Productions, and Extra Credits. 
all have amazing resources on mythology and storytelling. I also like the TED series on mythology. Ooh, add that to the list, too. I don't think it... It might not be quite as long as the others, because obviously TED has other things to post about, but it is quite good. Anyway, I have... Oh, so many thoughts and feelings about this myth. For one, I specifically chose it to compare and contrast with the story of Tiamat. And perhaps that was an unwise choice because there are plenty of goddesses that have creation stories that do not have a male counterpart. Mm, and this is our both podcast of our stories and, and we, do. <laughs> we like morally complex characters, so this this feels right. It does feel right. I also, a couple things that immediately struck out to me that I loved right away are, I had no idea that in this pantheon, the sun is represented by a goddess and the moon is represented by a god. That's not something that I've ever encountered before in mythology. Yeah. Usually it's flipped in my readings. Mm-hmm. I loved that. Mm-hmm. I also... How can you pass up the obvious imagery of a male god looking down at the empty earth and going, ooh, what's going on with this water? Let me stick my spear in it. I laughed as quietly as I could during that part because it's so, so clear. It is such visceral imagery. And also, we're so in love and taken with each other. Let's erect this pillar and dance around it. The imagery is amazing. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Very strong. Very good. I also am really fascinated with this idea of two gods that were basically made as twins that don't know what love is and then fall in love with each other but do it wrong. Right. And then have to do a ritual all over again so that they can have children that aren't deformed and then they just constantly left and right produce children Mm -hmm. but then when it comes down to what separates them there's a lot of vanity involved yeah and there's a lot of squabbling over who can kill or create more people that's very sibling rivalry-esque right and and it takes to me at least it takes the idea of kind of the perfect woman being quiet, you know, it's it, part of that story has a way of teaching women how to behave. But then at the end of the story, she's just this force for pure destruction. And I know that also probably is a part of that. You need to be a good woman in order to maintain peace. But again, from a modern day Western lens, I find that very interesting. <laughs> And I refuse to let you say it, so I'm going to say it. It's how much overlap does it have with the Persephone myth there at the end? Yeah. She cannot leave the underworld because she's eaten food from the underworld. Mm -hmm. And then we also have uh, him not being able to look at her and see her to get her out. But he succumbs. And that's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, where he goes down to the underworld to bring her back, but can't resist turning around to make sure that she's following him. And then he loses her. 
I am so fascinated that there was so much overlap with Grecian mythology, and I found it from multiple sources. But of course, there are also tellings that don't include those things. So I would love to know if I could read the original text, if there was overlap. Mm-hmm. But I mean, my my version is a composite of all the juicy bits I liked from all the other tellings of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to, again, transition with no grace into Love this <laughs> study that I read about that I am fascinated by. And I, here I go. Okay. I found a study that was published in the International Journal for the Psychology of Religion copyright 2001 and it is called god as a man versus god as a woman perceiving god as a function of the gender of god and the gender of the participant the study was run by rachel ann foster and renee l babcock they're from the department of psychology in the central michigan university and i cannot recommend this study enough as it is incredibly interesting it is Primarily a dive into Western assumption, or perhaps more accurately, the culturally ingrained belief that God, the creator, is a man. The study seems to primarily utilize Judeo-Christian themes in its exploration, and though it is specifically religious in nature, the use of story in the study really grabbed my attention. So here's a quote. The participants were asked to write a fictional story about meeting God in the form of either a man or a woman. Not only do the stories provide a way to examine the cultural as well as some people's personal God concepts in more depth, the story methodology also allows systematic comparison of differences of God as a woman and God as a man. Tracy, the study used story to explore commonly held beliefs. That is everything I love all in one thing. I can't believe I didn't know that this existed. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying not to give you the textbook version of it, but I'm so excited about it because when they looked at the male and female participants, they often responded similarly. Really? But... Yeah, they did, apparently. Um, they don't dive too much into the similarities. Obviously, that's not necessarily the purpose of the study. Mm-hmm. But when they responded differently, uh, quote, women are more likely than men to see God as a healer, nurturant, and majestic. Men are more likely than women to see God as a powerful king and vindictive. Which, right off the bat, I feel like those ideas are represented in both of our myths. Yeah. Although, both of our myths have the female goddess kind of being both parts. Yeah. And that is something that I couldn't ignore when, I mean, we're doing an episode about the female aspect of these stories. And I like that... The gods are as multifaceted as the humans that tell the stories. Yep. Which is why I was diving into this, which is specifically a study of humans creating gods based on their own 
cultural and individual beliefs. Uh, It was also interesting to me that uh, another quote, although participants of both genders commonly express surprise when God was a female, no participant was surprised that God was male. Participants were much more likely to require proof of God's divinity in the form of a miracle when she was female than when she was male. They were also more likely to question the ways of the world with a female deity and to talk about experiencing peace, love, and calmness as a result of the encounter. I think that relates a lot to what you were talking about, the fallacy that... Mm -hmm. As much as we want to believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, There was once a time that women ruled the world and it was peaceful and lovely. So I will also reference the demographic of this study. There were 435 participants. They were from two American universities, one on the West Coast and one in the Midwest. Hmm. They were all native English speakers. The mean age was 19 to 27. The group was 55% female. Um, they were 75% white, 27% Asian, and the rest identified as other. So it's not a study of a wide swath of human beliefs. The thing that interested me about it was that their beliefs so clearly defined their experience with a God figure, and it was told through personal story. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's so interesting. And just to give a little clarity for people who might not know a ton of psychological research, um, it is often conducted at universities, um, which is great because there's a, a large pool of people to choose from. But like you see here, it's a fairly narrow scope of the type of person you can get. But that comes from the fact that universities will pay for psychological experiments and research to be done. And so the easiest way to get a pool of participants is to get students, especially psychology students. It's usually a requirement if you're in a psychology major that you have to participate in a certain number of studies. Um, And so that's kind of a known issue in the psychological research world that a lot of times studies are done with the population very similar to this uh, usually there tends to be a bit more diversity across both gender and race but the age group is typically pretty similar so just to give a little context that that's not a unique failing of this study no no certainly not and because i'm not interested in it from a scientific standpoint the demographic uh, is something that i can separate my interest from that's a privilege of me being interested in story (laughs) but i think the fact that that study was even done is so interesting and and it's it doesn't surprise me at all that people expressed surprise when god was presented as female because you see it to this day if someone is talking about god or a god and they're like oh she like it's a subversive action it's a it's a a poking at societal norms. It's a very deliberate action when you describe God as a woman. Exactly. When Ariana Grande put out the song, God is a Woman, there were so many articles and tweets and 
Facebook posts of backlash Mm -hmm. because it was unacceptable to their mindset to express the story feature of God in a different way. Yeah. So I just want to close off since we've been talking about female goddesses. A, I think it's real fun that we did it around Mother's Day. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But I think that it's really important to acknowledge female creator gods because in modern Western times, people have argued that to view God, the singular creator, as either male or female is an inaccurate representation. Uh, Oftentimes that's as far as people will stray from God as specifically male. Mm -hmm. To make this argument, they'll cite Hindu scripture, the Old Testament, and other sacred texts. Um, That argument is used to pose that a God being defined by gender is seen as limiting. But just like many individuals who don't identify using a gender binary, that is a perfectly lovely way to define a self or story. But in many stories of gods from around the world, creators are women and mothers because they embody what some people identify as an inherently female experience. Mm -hmm. When you look at the vast pantheon of gods and goddesses around the world, it becomes very clear that that is not the only female experience that people value. But it is certainly one that I think we should be talking about. I completely agree. And I can't get it out of my mind to think about what it says about our society that we're far more comfortable with the idea of a non-binary or a gender god than we are with a woman as god how it feels so wrong to say god is a woman it feels so normal to say god is a man and it feels okay to say god is neither it just says so much about what it means to be a woman because what that implies is that being a woman is less than and that you're downgrading. So it's just something I don't need to dive into, but I just think it's a very, very quick shorthand way to say so much about how we view women still to this day. Exactly. In my research, I stumbled across a couple gods that are canonically genderless and I really look forward to exploring them in different episodes mm-hmm. and I there are lots of gods that do not identify on our gender binary but I don't necessarily think that people tying themselves up in knots to avoid female creator gods is the answer either completely agree the last thing I want to touch on before we wrap everything up is just the tropes you tend to see associated with the woman creator god mythology that we didn't touch on today. Please Uh, do. And these are very real and very valid. It just happens that Roan and I tend to like the same kinds of stories and chose ones that (laughs) didn't follow this particular thread. Oops. (laughs) 
So this is, uh, I found this in the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, the essential moments in the myth of most mother goddesses are her disappearance and then her reappearance and the celebration of her divine marriage. Her disappearance usually has a cosmic implication. Sexuality and growth decline. Her reappearance, choice of a male partner, and intercourse with him restores and guarantees fertility. After which, the male consort is frequently set aside or sent to the underworld to to be replaced the next year. The other major form of the mother goddess emphasizes her maternity. She is the protector and nourisher of a divine child and, by extension, all of humanity. This form occurs more frequently in iconography, a full-breasted or many-breasted figure holding a child in her arms than in a myth. Although people will say that the idea of the Virgin Mary is another form of that type of myth. So understanding the tropes in storytelling of these goddesses helps us understand the narratives we use to describe these women. It also helps us view them through the lens of not only the society that's telling the story, but also our society as well. And by organizing stories about women in creation, we can create a framework through which to discuss them more coherently. So that is why I wanted to talk about that version of the mother goddess myth that is fundamentally very different than the two stories we told you today. And perhaps someday we'll dive into them further. This episode was so exciting for me. I was also very stressed about it. Really? Because I want to cover everything all at once. I know, me too. But I think it is better for us to break it down, dive deep into certain things, dive our spears into the swirling waters of... (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you everyone who bared with me going on that brief psychological study... Was there giddy was no about bearing it. with that. That was a treat, and thank you for, for looking into that. <laughs> There's going to be a link in the show notes, Tracy. You should check it out. <laughs> Where can I find those show notes? Oh, you can find those show notes on our website, willingandfable.com. Oh. Head on over there. You can also contact us. You can learn more about us. You can see the beautiful artwork by Jamie Harrison and find more music by our lovely composer, Taylor Ash. It's a party on that website. It's a full party. Speaking (laughs) of parties, I guess. (laughs) Rowan, tell me something good. You can't see, but I'm doing finger guns. All right, Tracy, my something good. I'm going to go off of Mother's Day because that's been the theme. Mm -hmm. Obviously, at the time of this recording, we are all sheltering at home. So for Mother's Day this year, my... Parents and I both, actually, we logged on to the Chicago Institute of Arts website and we looked at all the beautiful artwork that they had posted and we did a pretend virtual museum tour and we went through and talked about all the art together. That's so and it fun. Was, it was so fun. And something that you guys might not know is that Rowan's parents are both artists, so... One of my dreams is to go to an art museum with them and just have them talk to me about art. That is just such a cool experience. It was very cool. And my father usually has more facts about the art than the curation does. (laughs) And my mom can teach anyone any technique you could imagine. This is very true. So it was 
very cool to go through it with them. And there were pieces that we were very familiar with. So it was kind of like visiting old friends, but it was a really good time. It felt a little less stuck at homey than I anticipated. And we already have a date to go do another virtual museum tour. That's so fun. I should do that with my mom. I think she'd really love that. You should do that with me. I, mean, I just... want to crash your trip with your mom, your virtual <laughs> trip with your mom. That's a given. That would be so fun. What's your something good, Trace? Sorry, Tracy, tell me something good. <laughs> Thank you. I was waiting. Um, so my something good is also along the lines of Mother's Day, but it also includes my father. Um, so for Mother's Day, I made my mom a cake and I went over to her house and we celebrated. But it was really fun because my mom... Jamie, who's my sister, her boyfriend Tim, and I all played Animal Crossing together, and we were sending her Mother's Day gifts in the game, and it was just really fun to sit with her and and have her feel really loved, and then we got on a FaceTime call with the rest of my sisters and just tried to make her feel as loved as possible while she's kind of sheltering at place alone, which she's doing because my father has been in Boston for the last seven weeks uh, on the front lines of some of the research for the coronavirus and the COVID-19 research. But Your for dad's first, amazing. Thank you. I think I think very highly of him. Um, for the first time in seven weeks, he was able to come home right before Mother's Day to see my mom. And so I was able to talk to him and find out about the research he's doing, which I won't go into full detail, but he's basically facilitating... Let me explain this as, as succinctly as possible. All of the information and databases needed to do research on the coronavirus are in separate places, and companies charge hundreds of thousands of dollars to use them. They're now free. And so he consolidated... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, they've made them free. And so his team consolidated them into one dashboard that they then used uh, data analytics, machine learning, and this thing called deep learning to run real-time analytics on the data and facilitate really, really, really complex research. So he he sat me down and the IT nerd in me geeked out for 45 minutes straight asking him questions. And it was just really, really... Aren't I correct that you helped him learn a new form of code for this project? Only a little bit. It, only only in, in name only. But um, he and a team of developers worked literally around the clock to get this thing done in three weeks. Um, During the day, developers worked in Texas and in Boston, and then um, other developers worked in Singapore. And so it was a 24-hour cycle, and it was just, it's amazing the work that they're doing. They're really, they're changing the world. And I'm just so, between getting the chance to really spend time with my mom and lift her spirits, getting her to see my dad for the first time in weeks, and then learn about the amazing work he's doing, it was just a really really inspiring weekend with my family. I'm so glad I have you and your family to tell me about the good news that's happening during this time and hear all the work that amazing frontline people are actually getting done because I find on the news, even at my best research level, I don't always have access to that information. Mm -hmm. And I love it when you call me and tell me about what your dad is working on. Yeah, so that's my something good. I'm just really proud of my family and proud of everyone for working hard and staying safe through all this. And really quick before we wrap up, because this was a very mother-centric episode 
and we were talking about Mother's Day. I just quickly want to say for those people that do not like celebrating Mother's Day or do not have the ability to celebrate Mother's Day, uh, for those who don't have a traditional mother figure, or more importantly, for those who define their family or their own lives a little differently, I hope you feel included in this episode because while we are talking about mothers and females and birth, our primary focus here is the richness of human story and the way that people can create beautiful things no matter what they're calling themselves. I could not agree more. And I I hope that you feel that our podcast is always a safe place to explore story and and even kind of just escape from the realities of day to day through whatever stories we can share with you that week. It's meant to be a we're meant to be a happy escape. And I hope we can be that for you. And while this episode was a little on the sappier side with uh, (laughs) goddesses of creation, next episode, we're going to be talking about sloth, the sin of sloth and myths and stories that go along with that. (laughs) Happy shelter at home. Uh, Yeah, happy shelter at home. Potentially not you. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you can at least go for a nice walk. But we're going to we're going to put on our sweatpants, throw on a sweatshirt, get all cozy and talk about sloth. Hey guys, this is Tracy. I wanted to jump on and let you know that at the end of our first two episodes, you heard us use a catchphrase that we thought was very clever and very original. Turns out it was only clever. The phrase, have a story worthy week, is actually used by the podcast The Moth, which is a great podcast and you should definitely check it out. But for our purposes, you're going to hear us try out new catchphrases at the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you like what we're doing, remember, stories grow in the telling. So tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.